Good morning, Grace. This morning's reading is Genesis chapter 40. Joseph interprets two prisoners' dreams. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hands as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they have sh- that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of, my, out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made the feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Good morning. Last week you got epistemology. This week you get two new words. Sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty is the fact that God is all-powerful, that his power knows no limit. Providence is the way that he wields that for greatest glory and good. Let me give you a definition of providence. Uh, It is his, that is God's, purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plans into action, guides all things toward his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation of those things. This is a slightly different definition than I gave you back in January when we considered the providence of God in the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. 
And yet the heart of it remains the same, same for the one I gave you back then and in this one here, and that's this. God's providence is God's guidance of the universe for his glory and his people's good. Sometimes his the providence of God is clearly stated in, in Scripture, like in Genesis 50-20, which we'll come to in a little bit. And other times, as is the case in this chapter, it's a bit more subtle. Well, regardless of the degree of visibility of the providence of God, it runs through every page of the Bible. Would you settle on that, Grace? The providence of God, his, his good ruling of all things, according to his sovereign power, is on every, runs through every page of the Bible. Having worked our way through the first two chapters of Genesis, the fact that the world and everything in it, the universe and all that has been made belongs to God ought to be clear. The fact that we've worked through the next 40 chapters of Genesis in that, I hope the fact that God's mighty hand is over every aspect of creation to fulfill his awesome purposes and promises are equally clear. In other words, even though we're just partially through the very first book of the Bible, we've already been given enough to see and love the doctrine of the providence of God. It is the way God has chosen to work in the world that he made and the source, this is why it's so important for us, it is the source of our hope that all of his promises are sure. With that, I'm happy to help you see the providence of God this morning in Joseph's place and in the prison itself, in the dreams of his cellmates, the the placing of his cellmates in with him, their dreams, his interpretation, and even, and in some ways especially, the providence of God and the cupbearer's forgetfulness to talk to Pharaoh on Joseph's behalf. I'm happy because every one of these examples of God's providence provide yet another reason for us to trust wholly in God. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, to trust entirely in God. That's, that's the great call of the Christian life is to trust completely in God and his promises for us through Jesus Christ why would we do that? I mean, I don't even trust myself. Why would I put my trust in, in God in this way? And we get several more reasons this morning why you would. And here's the point. The whole sermon in like two three sentences. God's providential reign, God's providential reign is over big and small events, people, places, and things. It is over every fraction of a second, the most mundane tasks, the briefest interactions, every single penny, the youngest people, the furthest nation, the tiniest joy and struggle over every movement of every atom and every corner of the universe. Through his providence, God is bringing everything together for the greatest glory and good. And because of that, We can trust the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation and everlasting life. So let's pray. God would help us to see that, love it, and live in light of it. God, we we (laughs) maybe the most significant line, the line that runs through my head the most, the line I hope runs through the head of 
all of your people in this room the most. The line that I hope we declare the most to the ends of the earth is that, God, you are greater than we could possibly imagine. It makes me so sad that so many people believe in a way too small God. It makes me even more sad that many people have rejected a God because he is way too small. We, we, we have too small of a view of who you are and what you are doing in the universe that you made. I pray that as we continue to work through Genesis and through the Bible, as we continue to live life together as Christians and proclaim the good news to the lost, that as we see you work and as we come to know your word more and more clearly, that we would be ever convinced that as great as we can possibly imagine you being, you are greater still. If we took everyone in this room and all the greatness that every one of us have experienced and read about and, and learned and, and love and put it, put it together and multiplied it by a billion, and then that by a billion, we still wouldn't even scratch the surface of your greatness. God, impress us with that increasingly this morning, that we would know that it is right and good and the only reasonable thing to do is to put all of our hope and trust in you. You are sovereign, and in your sovereignty, you are providentially reigning over your creation through the real choices of your people, through the real events that take place, to bring about the greatest glory for yourself and your name, which is the most loving thing you can do, and the greatest good for your people, which is to see you in all of your glory. So God, help us this morning as we see the simple, familiar, childlike story to see your hand over all of it, directing it through the real choices of these people to bring about awesome good, to bring about awesome good, to bring about awesome good, to bring about the ultimate awesome good. Good. We love that. At least we want to love it. Help us to do that this morning. Help us to realize, as Kyle said earlier, that none of us have. None of us have rightly understood you and your glory and greatness. And so, None of us have rightly honored you in it, and so all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory, and our our hope is Christ alone. So help us to see in all of this how it all funnels to Jesus, how it's meant to draw all of us to the pinnacle of your revelation of your glory and the sending of your Son and his suffering and death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. I pray all this in his mighty name. Amen. So to be clear, the word providence does not occur in Genesis 40. To be clearer still, it doesn't occur in the Bible. So what, what is that all about, Pastor Dave? You, you just like prayed and talked for a long time about a word that isn't even in there? Well, if it is truly a biblical concept, then it is one like Trinity or evangelism. Those words never occur in the Bible either. Concepts that are taught in the Bible without using those actual words. And so here's, here's, the, here's the deal. Providence is simply the word we've given. Just like Trinity is the word we've given to help us understand the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Providence is the word we've given to the reality that is taught and displayed everywhere in Scripture. Perhaps most clearly, if you want to know, if you want a passage where you can see this most clearly, it's in a passage like Romans 8, 28. Listen to this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, everything works together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. So again, the word providence never occurs in the Bible, but providence is simply another way of saying what Romans 8.28 says, of saying that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And with that understanding, it's easy to see the same idea a little bit later in Genesis, Genesis 50.20. Joseph and his brother says to his brothers, as for you, you made real choices, you made real evil choices, you sold me into slavery. You meant evil against me. That's, that's real. That's true. But God meant it for good. Your evil choices, God was providentially reigning over even those for good. What good? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. There's a famine that's coming, and it is through their evil choices that God was reigning to rescue millions of people. Okay, so what is explicit in Romans 8 and Genesis 50 and other passages in the Bible is more subtly, but I think unmistakably, in Genesis 40, in our passage this morning. In particular, I want to help you see eight aspects of the providence of God in this passage, once again, to help you to see that God is entirely trustworthy in order that you would trust in him. So with that, here we go. Eight, eight expressions of God's providence, his working all things for good in this situation. Uh, it's found in the very first, right away in the very first verses. Providentially, Joseph was in charge of this prison. If you remember, he was, he was wrongly sold into slavery and then unjustly put into prison at a false accusation leveled against him, against, or by the wife of the, the head of the Pharaoh's guard. So he's in prison. Providentially, he was there when the cupbearer cup and baker arrived. He had been in charge for some time, it says. So it wasn't a, a short amount of time. He had been there and been in charge for some time before this cupbearer and baker arrived. It was no coincidence, Grace. The text makes this plain. It was no coincidence that the king's servants were sent to this particular prison, that this particular prison was the one that Joseph was in and had the favor of the person in charge of it, the keeper of the prison. As the rest of the book and chapter or chapter and book make clear, this was God's doing. But I want to back up for a second. Just, just back up for a minute because you and I need to be able to see this in our own lives. What I want you to do is leave here with a clear understanding of the providence of God as it relates to you all and to me. So to do that, let's back up. Okay, so here's a question. To what end is God exercising his providence in these, this sending Joseph to prison and then this cupbearer and baker into it with him? What, what, what is, to what end was God exercising his providence here? Or in other words, what good and glory is God after in sending these two men to, to J- uh, Joseph's prison? Okay, as we read just a bit ago from Genesis 50, this was a part of God's plan to put Joseph in charge of Egypt in order to save millions from starvation. Okay, so what, what was the providence of God? You know, spoiler alert, maybe if you don't want to know where this goes, plug your ears for a second. But but here's what's going to happen. In just a, a little bit, Joseph is going to be released from this uh, prison and put in charge of basically Egypt. And God is going to help him to see a famine is coming through Pharaoh's dream. He's going to interpret that. 
He's going to set aside grain. And, and because of that, during years of plenty and years of extreme famine, millions will be saved because of what God is going to do through Joseph. Okay, so that's, that's why Genesis 50.20 tells us that. But we got to back up a little bit further. What's God's purpose for exercising this particular providence here? Well, that was to allow Abraham's children to prosper in number and possessions. In Egypt, they are going to come to power. They're going to receive remarkable blessing, remarkable favor, and they're going to grow in number by, uh, 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 well, lots. <laughs> lots and lots and lots and lots. It's still a relatively small family at this point. But God said, you'll be like the stars in the sky and the dust on the earth. They're not there yet, but their time in Egypt and prosperity in favor of the Egyptians is going to allow that to kick in. Okay, but that, let's back up or zoom out a little further still, that was to allow them to be humbled in their eventual eventual centuries-long enslavement. Well, that was to allow God to miraculously deliver them as a display of his unlimited and unrivaled power. Well, let's back up a little bit more. In his providence, that was to help the Israelites trust in God as the one who would rescue a people that had rejected him as God, sinned against him in countless ways, and stood condemned to death before him. Let's zoom out a little bit further still. This providential working of God to bring the cupbearer and the baker to Joseph's prison was that the line of Abraham would continue to the one who would rise up to set his people free, first spiritually and then physically, reconciling them to God by offering his life as a ransom for their sin. And that was to fulfill God's ultimate plan, to get every ounce of glory and good for glory for himself and good for his people. <laughs> okay, so what does that have to do with, with us? The main point here is that the events of the beginning of Genesis 40 were not coincidental or by chance. They were brought about by God as a means of fulfilling his great purposes. And indeed, even though God's methods are often curious and hidden, their outcome is certain. In the end, then, whenever we read a story in the Bible or watch events unfold in our own lives, we can rest assured that they are under the sovereign hand of God to accomplish his great plan of maximum glory and good. That's a mouthful, isn't it? That's awesome. And I'm going to tell you even more why that's so awesome in just a little bit. But having considered the the big picture, the theology of these first few verses, let me just say something quickly about their practicality. Keep in mind, although Joseph had the favor of the one in charge of this prison, and, and although things weren't as bad as they could have been, it was still no desirable situation. We know that because he didn't want to be there. We'll find out in just a little bit that he, he asked for help to get out from the cupbearer. What's more, the fact that he'd been there for some time, but without any biblical indication that that God had revealed himself to him during that time, means this, this would have been hard. <laughs> it's just not hard to, rem- to imagine how being in a place like this would have been a challenge to his faith. Joseph had trusted in God to this point, and, and this, this brings it to us, Grace. He'd remained faithful through some remarkable trials already, but would it continue? How long would his trust in the goodness of the providence of God 
last in the face of such hardship? It seems like the hardship just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. How many of you have known that? Where, man, I, you know, it's one thing to have a bad day. It's, a, it's another thing to have bad days stacked on bad days stacked on bad day. How long would, would Joseph's trust in the providence of God last? How long is it even reasonable to trust in this providence of God when everything seems to be coming unraveled? It's one thing to understand the concept of God's providence. It's another thing to trust it when things aren't great. And it's another thing altogether to hold fast to it when suffering is severely unjust and prolonged and without end in sight. And so the question is, the question this introduces to us, forces us to ask is, what's the end? God, I I think this is true. I think your word teaches this. I think it's worth trusting. But but how deep into the pit do we go before we say, well, wait a minute, what's this all about? I want to help you to see that as we continue on. Here's the second display of the providence of God. Verse 4. Providentially, the prison guard put the cupbearer and baker in Joseph's charge. Not only were they in the same prison, not only did he have the favor of the prison guard, but they put the, the, the prison guard put these two men directly in Joseph's charge. Not only was he in the same prison by God's providence, not only was Joseph still in the favor of the prison keeper at this point by God's providence, but again by God's providence These two men were put in his charge. This is an important part of God's plan. So so here you go. I'm going to get more practical. What's the end? How long do you trust this? How how deep does the suffering go before you say, there's no way this is for good? The main point for us here is that God's providence is over even the most unexpected aspects of life. Joseph had no idea that these two men, I I said in the prayer room this morning, how many other people had come through the prison before these two while Joseph was there? And as far as we know, nothing came out of their coming into the prison. But who among us can remembers the good providence of God when you bump into someone at Menards? You just just bump into them. Who, Who thinks of the providence of God in that moment? Or, you know, the last time you were at a Michigan State football game and you're sitting next to the guy? How many of you remembered the providence of God? Or when you're at Smokey's and your waitress brings you the ribs? Who remembers the providence of God? Moms, how many times when your kids just punch one of the others? How many times do you think, oh, the sweet, sweet providence of God? (laughs) The point is, think of the most mundane, the thing that every day you blow past. Every day, you just blow past it. How many of those are there? Probably, I don't know, like 90% of our day, right? Think of the most mundane aspect of your existence, something that happens over and over and over. Think about that. Think about that, and here's why. We don't know what random encounter might God might use in awesome, awesome ways. And honestly, Maybe he'll never use anything in any of our lives in awesome, awesome ways. Most likely, none of us are going to save millions of people from a famine through some random, random encounter. But here it is. We need to learn at every, learn to look at every interaction we have through the lens that this is a part of the sovereign work of God providentially taking place for maximum glory and good. So don't like give people the creepy stare. You know, you know they're a part of the 
providence of God. Don't, don't, you know, give them the creepy stare where you're wondering exactly how, but do this. And I love this. I love this. Hear this grace. This, this recognition, this realization, it's not meant to give creepy stares, but here's what it is for. It is to rejoice in the fact that everyone and everything we encounter is a genuine expression of the love of God for you. If your hope is in Jesus and you bump into someone at Menards, you think, God loves me. This is amazing. I don't know exactly why. I don't exactly know how. I might never do that. But this bump under the providence of God is an expression of God's love for me. Moms, doesn't that change the way your kids punching one another looks? Guys, uh, maybe a long day at work or a friendship that goes sideways or it changes everything. This changes everything if you can remember this. God is sovereign and in his sovereignty, he is providentially ruling over even the most mundane aspects of our life for maximum glory and good. We don't always know how, but think, just think of the disciples. How deep does this go? How long do we trust You think of the disciples staring at their Lord on the cross. That has to be the end of it, right? You can't, like, if that's not the end of trust in the providence of good, the goodness of the providence of God, what is? Well, the greatest act of ugliness, the deepest the pit ever went, was the means of our salvation. Amen? Here's the, I don't know what number it is. Here's the next one. Providentially, God gave a dream to both men. Verses 5 through the beginning of 8. We noted before that not every dream, there's dreams all over in Genesis, not every dream has a specific meaning that you and I are meant to seek out. In fact, God mainly used dreams to communicate his will to his people before the Bible was complete. Further, it's important to understand that wherever God did mean his people to act on a dream given by him, he made sure that they knew that it was from him. And he made sure that they knew its meaning and implications, what it meant and what they were supposed to do about it by providing an interpretation or an interpreter. Hebrews 1.1 speaks in fairly clear terms about this. But with that, God gave dreams to the cupbearer and the baker. The text says it plainly, each his own dream and each dream its own interpretation. For reasons were not given, Even before we know what the dreams are, we're told that these men were greatly troubled. We don't know why. It doesn't, it's curious to me. Did they not normally dream? Or it almost sounds like normally they had crazy dreams and someone was right there to tell them what their crazy dreams meant. Kind of sounds that way. They seem surprised that no one was there to interpret it for them. We We don't know why. Was this dream more vivid than the normal dreams they had? I don't know, but all we know is that they were troubled to the point that Joseph noticed. They they had a countenance upon them. Joseph was over them, and he noticed that they were downcast. There's a familiar lesson here. I I, I got to be honest. Most when I when I read what I'm going to preach on at the beginning of the week, I have far more questions than answers. And this is a familiar lesson that God has given us once again, Grace. I, Hear this, hear it again, hear it a hundred times. He has given us everything we need to know in his word, not necessarily everything we might want to know. There's another lesson here in the fact that God moves in mysterious ways. We just sang that. This is worth singing about and praising God for. Grace, again, we have no promise that we will ever come to know all of why God is doing what he is doing. 
There is so much of his providence that we will probably never understand. There's no promise in this life or the next that we will know all of what God was doing in all of our encounters. Much of his providence is and always will be hidden from us. Our job is to know his word well, for in it God does reveal certain aspects of his providence to us and all that he requires of us. The rest we may wonder about. It's fine to wonder about them even as we entrust them to God. And and here's a third lesson. I think this is really important, especially for someone like me. The fact that Joseph noticed the heaviness of the men's countenances. Again, I just don't think you can appreciate that unless you can put, put your head around what he's experiencing, what he's enduring. He had so many staggering troubles of his own. And yet he was not so self-focused as to miss the pain of others. This is, Again, this is good for me to hear. I need reminders like this. To be present enough in life to notice when people are, they got, the people that God puts in my path are, are heavy laden. I need to be selfless enough to care. And I need to be on mission enough to offer a lighter burden. That is Jesus Christ. Here's the next one. Joseph knew that God's providence extended even to dreams. When the men explained the source of their trouble, he said, tell me your dreams. And they did. When they explained the source of their troubled and downcast countenance, their dreams, Joseph didn't even flinch to acknowledge God as the God of dreams. Therefore, without hesitation, he rhetorically asked, does God, does does not interpretation, or do not interpretations belong to God? I wish I knew how Joseph knew to say that. <laughs> like, I mean, it's true, regardless of whether God would give him an interpretation. But here's another question. How, how did he know that God would? Maybe, maybe he didn't. Maybe he was just making this declaration that if, if there's any hope to know the, the meaning of your dreams, God has it. But I just think, man, he said that with such clarity and and conviction, and we're not, we're not even sure that he understood his own dreams. There's no indication that he had had some kind of gift of interpretation. All, all we know, and all, apparently all we needed to know, was that he knew that God was sovereign even over dreams. And so he simply said that, and out came the dreams. <laughs> Cupbearer told him his dreams. Here's the next one. Providentially, Joseph listened to and interpreted him. Interestingly, again, there's no indication. The cupbearer says his dream. There's no indication that Joseph said, hey, hang on, let me just go pray about this, see if God has anything for for me or for you in this. There's not even an indication that God somehow said anything to Joseph. The text simply reads as if he knew what the dream meant as soon as he heard it. The thing that rattled around in my head this week was it was some kind of like Google Translate. If you've ever used that, you know, German to English, it was like dream to Egyptian. It just was there in real time. The cupbearer told Joseph the dream, and Joseph matter-of-factly declared, this is its interpretation. No idea where it came. We know it came from God. No idea how it came from God. The short version is that it meant the cupbearer would be returned to Pharaoh's favor and his position in just three days. Good news. Good news indeed. Encouraged, the baker told Joseph history. Awesome. I mean, that's if that's where we're going. I, tell me mine too. It didn't work out so well. Without hesitation, Joseph answered and said, "The dream meant that this 
guy would die in three days. He, he too would be lifted up in a certain sense, only to be put to death by Pharaoh. For a second time, we're not told how Joseph knew this, but the text makes clear that by God's hand, Joseph knew. Again, Grace, we don't know why the cupbearer received a favorable dream by the providence of God. We don't, we don't know why the cupbearer did. There's no indication he, he, he was less offensive to Pharaoh or some kind of a, a, a better in any way. We, we're just not told why he received a favorable, favorable dream, but the baker an unfavorable one. Just as we don't know why some among us suffer greatly while others experience greater comfort. We, we don't know why the providence of God does what it does in our lives, other than in the ultimate sense. But we are sure that the outcomes of both dreamers, as well as everything you and I encounter, are from the good hand of the Lord for those who love him. Three more. Here's number five, six, something like that. Joseph asked for a favor and then entrusted it to the providence of God, 14 and 15. Before this particular scene closes, Joseph asked for a favor in the name of returned kindness and justice. Joseph had no doubt about his interpretation, so much so that he asked the cupbearer as if he already knew this were going to be the case. Not the baker. He didn't ask the baker. He asked the cupbearer to plead his case before Pharaoh when he was reinstated to his position. In simple and clear terms, Joseph stated his innocence and asked the cupbearer to seek nothing more than justice for him. This explanation of innocence and request for help, combined with what we know was his pleading when his brothers threw him into the pit, it helps us to see grace when when you're in bitter providence, when you're in providence it's hard, especially due to the injustice of someone else. It's good and, and right to name the injustice, to call it injustice, and ask for relief from it. It's good and right to do that. If you're in a a hard spot in life, it's good to come to God and say, this providence is hard. Would you deliver me from it? The Psalms are filled with examples of that. It's good and right to do that. And if it's based on the injustice of someone else, it's it's even gooder and righter. That's not in here. But it also highlights, hear this, because this is the key. We're pretty good at that. Life's hard, we pray, right? God help me, deliver me. We're good at that. But what we need to see here, man, do we need to see this. This is not how the gospel is usually presented. It also highlights the need to do so without placing our hope in a particular outcome. Our hope can't be in an outcome but in the universal goodness of the providence of God. As we noted earlier, whether we are delivered from injustice or left in it longer, God's providence ensures that either one is our greatest good. Do you get that? Let me, let me say that again. It, <laughs> the universal goodness of the providence of God means that whether we are delivered from suffering or sin of others or injustice or left in it for longer, God's providence ensures that it will be for our greatest good. That's why James says, consider it all joy when you face trials of many time, many kinds. That's why. That's the providence of God at work. That's the significance and goodness of it. Here's the next one. 
Providentially, every bit of Joseph's interpretations came true. Verses 20 to 22. Three days later, just as Joseph had predicted, the cupbearer was restored and the baker was killed. The exactness, the timing, and the way it was carried out of his interpretations was evidence of their divine origin. And just imagine how encouraging this must have been to Joseph. Having been given a right interpretation must have strengthened his hope that God was still with him and for him. And having been given a right interpretation of these dreams, perhaps his own dream. Do you remember his his dream that one day he would rule over even his family? That probably gave him hope that even his own dreams would come true which probably also gave him hope that the cupbearer would remember him. (laughs) Just said a minute ago, our hope can't be in a particular outcome of our prayers. Pray, ask God for good things, but your hope can't be in a specific outcome, but in the goodness of whatever outcome God gives. Here's the last one. Providentially, the cupbearer forgot (laughs) about Joseph's request. In spite of the remarkableness of his interpretations, how accurately, that that had to have impressed the cupbearer, right? Like, whoa, he nailed that. I mean, that's pretty awesome. That had to have been impressive. But in spite of the remarkableness of the accuracy of his interpretations, the restored cupbearer forgot to make good on the favor that Joseph had asked for. Verse 23. So again, consider this. Consider Joseph's plight. Put yourself in it as you contemplate the significance of the providence of God for your life. Consider his plight. Wrongly enslaved, wrongly imprisoned, his faith tested by being left in prison for some time with no indication that God had revealed himself to him during that time. Hope springing from such a clear act of God to give him this interpretation of the dreams that came perfectly true. Hope springing from the idea that the cupbearer might plead his case before Pharaoh all to come crashing down as it became increasingly clear that the cupbearer had forgotten. As days went by and days went by, it's just not hard to imagine ourselves in those shoes. Man, God gave me this. Clearly, he means this for this particular purpose. My hope is in that. And then that fades away. Clearly, God had more prison ministry in mind for Joseph. Can you get that? Can you appreciate that? Can you imagine the trial that you're in right now and praise God for that? God had some more prison ministry in mind. I promise you, Joseph never signed up for this. There was nothing in the back of the church. Who wants to go do a prison ministry with inmates? Let's sign my name up. This is not how this shook down. But God had more prison ministry in mind for Joseph. Consider it, Grace. Consider that in your life. Whenever we ask God for something good, in faith, which we ought to do, and we do not immediately receive it, we know for certain that God has something better for us in the continuation of our current circumstances. That's so freeing. To pray for the will of God in faith, but to not immediately be be delivered from difficulty or sickness is to know that God has some glory yet to get and some good yet to give in our suffering. There's so much help in this. There's so much hope in this. It means that we're we're just so focused so often on changing our circumstances. We don't like our circumstances. We just put so much into changing them rather than trusting in the providence of God in them. He has more glory to get and more good to give you 
if you remain in your circumstances. Oh, that we'd increasingly become a church that believes that in every trial. Therefore, let's be weary of thinking we can read the tea leaves of the providence of God. I know God is doing this in this situation. Let's be careful of that. If Joseph had really attached his hope to his deliverance by a particular means, like the cupbearer's advocacy, his hope would have been dashed. But Joseph's charge, our charge, Grace, was not to put trust in how we think the providence of God might work or ought to work, but in the unwavering goodness of God's providence in whatever form it takes. While having been forgotten by the cupbearer, might have felt like a crushing blow if he'd put his hope in the cupbearer. In reality, as we will soon see, this was, it seems like the lowest of lows, but it was in reality the turning point for Joseph in his struggles. God was testing him and refining him. While Joseph didn't know it yet, God was working in such a way that everything was going back up from this point on in his life. We don't know when God might be doing that. We don't even know if God might be doing that for us in this life. But here's what we do know. We need to rest easy, Grace, and rejoice greatly in unanswered and answered prayers alike. (laughs) That is so counterintuitive, right? If God says yes to your prayers, we praise God for them. If God says no to your prayers, we praise God for them. For that as well. He has more glory to get and more good to give without without answering the way we think he should. Here's the brief conclusion. If it wasn't already, I hope it's now easy for you to see God's providence on display in this passage. I hope that makes it easier for you to see throughout the entire Bible. I hope it's easy for you to see the goodness of his providence for his people. Not just that it's there, but that it's good, and we, won't, we wouldn't want it, shouldn't want it. It would be silly to want it any other way. It's always aimed at the greatest good and glory. And I hope these things combined are a renewed charge, maybe for the first time, like Kyle prayed earlier. If, if you have never placed your hope in Jesus, this is a significant reason why you ought. This weird story of this guy that died a long time ago who was in a prison with a cupbearer, and you probably don't even know what a cupbearer is. I didn't even tell you what a cupbearer was, and a, a baker. I mean, what, what in the world? A cupbearer and a, a baker. Because of that, you ought to trust in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? What I mean is time after time after time after time, we see the faithfulness of God in simple and miraculous ways. It was simple here. It's about to become miraculous soon in Genesis. It's been miraculous before. It'll be miraculous again. Why would we put our hope in God, in his ability to, his offer of salvation? The answer is a cupbearer and a baker. (laughs) God is faithful every time, always. Amen. And so again, I hope all these things combined make it easier, even one notch easier, to trust even, even one more ounce in the promises that God has offered to all whose hope is in Jesus. This afternoon, you're going to be faced with a trial. This afternoon, you're going to bump into someone at Menards. This afternoon, by the grace of God, you'll be at Smokey's and someone will bring you some ribs. And you're going to have to remember, and the ribs will be burnt, and that's not normally, you wouldn't think of that as good. But I want, I, I hope this passage helps you to, 
even one ounce more trust in the promises of God that are offered to those who hope in Jesus.